out of the tabernacle, which if you're here and you haven't had a chance to tune in, uh, you're looking at the layout. Now, these are the exact dimensions, so I should clarify that this is not the layout itself because this altar would be in the foyer. We just don't have the foyer space to put this big thing out in the altar or out in the foyer. But these flags, they didn't have American and Christian flags in the Old Testament. Shocking, right? This didn't come till 1776 was our independence. Then the flag, I don't remember exactly the flag. but um, So you're in, see those poles right there? You're inside the tent of meeting. So that would be the actual tent. But then the outer courts of the tabernacle go all the way outside our building and back probably to the grass. And that was, that, that is, this altar would be in the courtyard. Then you'd have the, uh, the laver of water that we're going to talk about tonight. That would be there. And then as soon as you come into that entranceway, you'd be in the holy place where there was three pieces of furniture. And then you'd come behind the veil and there was the Ark of the Covenant. I glaze over that very fast because we covered this in depth in the previous weeks of this series. Um, and so in the previous three weeks. And so if you missed that, the good news is it's not in history where you could not access it. You can tune in. You can go to our, our website, refugechurchonline.com, and you can click on the media tab, and you will find so many different venues to which you can catch back up on the information that you missed. The last time we got together, we talked all about that first step at, at the altar of sacrifice as you came into the outer court. And as a matter of fact, we learned that every single piece of furniture in the tabernacle could fit inside this altar. We will live in a time where people like great moves of God in small altars. That's not the case back then. He'd say everything can fit in the altar. The altar is where it starts. And so we must begin. We talked last time. I say last week, two weeks ago, because we didn't have it last week. We talked last time about how the altar is the place of repentance. It's the first step where we come before God and we, we die out to self. We, God, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. I want to lay this down at your feet, whatever that is. And so uh, tonight, though, we look at that second step as we're moving in, and it's the brazen laver or the laver of water. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, God, so very much for your presence and power. Thank you for every person who is here. Lord, we pray for every person who's struggling with sickness and illness. There are many, many people that are, are dealing with illnesses. So touch their bodies right now. Give them strength, Lord, I pray, that they would get back on their feet and back to the work which you've called them to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so, as you would pass the altar of sacrifice, after there was an, an, an animal that was killed and blood was shed, you would then move on to the place of washing and cleansing, which if you could imagine what it would be like in the Middle Eastern desert to kill an animal and lay that carcass on the altar and burn it on the altar of sacrifice, and then you'd be moving to the next place, I would imagine that you would just be just a little bit dirty. Probably have some blood on your hands, maybe on your clothes, and, and I don't know how you possibly could not have that. And so you would walk to the next place that God laid out, and he said it's the place of washing and cleansing. Exodus 30 and 17 tells us about it. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass to wash withal, and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. They called that tent of meeting the tabernacle of the congregation, and then the altar. And so it was right positioned right there as you just saw in the picture. And so it said, thou shalt put water therein. Obviously, a place of washing and cleansing should have water. 
right? For Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water. That Read that with me. That they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and feet again. What does it say? That they die not. And it shall be a statute for them, even to him and to his seed throughout generations. Did you notice that very serious saying? Two times it says, this needs to be done. So death doesn't occur. If this is, what, what happens in your mind if you kill the animal, offer it on the altar, and you say, man, I'm running short on time. I got to get into God's presence today. And you skip the brazen labor. What happens? They die. According to scripture, that high priest, he skips that. He's dead. It's gone. It's clearly laid out. The, the labor of water is one of two pieces of furniture that we do not have dimensions on. So everything else we have dimensions, that serves as my brazen labor over there. But I guarantee you it was not a table with a nice salad bowl on top of it. But we don't know what that looked like. They, it doesn't give dimensions. Exodus 38.8 says, Bezalel made the bronze wash basin and its bronze stand from bronze mirrors donated by the women who were served at the entrance of the tabernacle. See, women were carrying mirrors even back then. And so they donated him, and he, formed, he formulated this, but we don't have dimensions on this particular piece of furniture. All we know is it was bronze, it had mirrors, and you used the wash basin to wash your hands and your feet. While other pieces of furniture in the tabernacle were overlaid with bronze and, and brass, this one was made entirely of brass. It wasn't just overlaid. It obviously needed to be large enough for the priest to wash both hands and feet. So I would imagine it when I started looking through pictures. This is the closest thing that I could find that I would imagine it to look like. Because I doubt that it would be like a bird feeder that you wash up here and then they expected the priest to be like. You know what I mean? It's probably something that you'd wash and then you probably could. Some theologians actually believe that it was big enough to put your whole body in it. Imagine that, huh? Be kind of gross, like, yeah, he bathed there yesterday. I'm going to jump in that water and, like, yeah, a little, a little gross. Especially germs. People are really f afraid of germs right now. It's all over the media. It obviously needed to be large enough for them to wash these things. Laver of brass and the foot of it is what Scripture says. So if there's a laver of brass and a foot of it, this is what I would imagine it to look like based on scriptural words. And so... Uh, the upper bowl was for washing the hands and upper body, lower bowl probably feet and legs. And could it be that the reason there are no specific dimensions given for this piece of furniture is that God wanted us to understand that there is no limit to what he can do. There is no depth to what he can wash away. There's no, there's no, oh yeah, four feet, six feet, eight feet, 12 feet. No, 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 no. When it comes to the water, he can wash. There's no depth into what he can wash away. <laughs> Nothing is your, in your past is so powerful that it can't be washed away in the waters of baptism. And so when we're washed in the water, even in the New Testament, right here today, we are a new creature in Christ. Psalm 103, 12 says, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, I've said that before. North and south, there's a starting point. There's an ending point. There's a north pole. There's a south pole. God specifically chooses north and east and west, not north and south. Because you know what? North, you eventually you hit north and you're going to start going south. East and west, there is no stopping point. There's no, he's, in other words, it's infinite. It's gone. 
Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. I'm thankful for verses just like that. Is there any other sinful person in this sanctuary tonight that can say, I'm there with you. I am thankful for that type of a verse. There's nothing as powerful against sin as the blood of Calvary. Just as the altar came before the labor of water, so the blood of Christ paved the way for our sins to be washed away. That was a good statement, and I think some of you missed it. Just as in the tabernacle. You'd come to the altar of sacrifice where blood was shed, and then there was a place of washing and cleansing at the water. Just like that, guess where we are today? We can come to a place of repentance because of the blood of Calvary, and the blood of Calvary is what allows us to go into this waters of baptism and have our sins washed away so we're a new creature in Christ. So we might not know the exact dimensions of the labor of water, but we do know one thing that's very clear in Scripture. It's placement. It was immediately after the altar, and the priests needed to wash that they die not. That's what we know scripturally is clear. The Old Testament tabernacle was set up as a type, Scripture says, a type and shadow of things to come. So what does this mean? It's often known as uh, as, as foreshadowing or and so when you say, okay, it, it really means this, but it was also pointing to something else. So he was, I, I'm, I'm writing this down. This is the, the plan for my people in that day. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, it was also very much a pattern of the cross. Uh, we are called in scripture to align ourselves with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So. We've seen that the tabernacle points directly to this cross. So we, we look at these steps, and we can not only see our approach to God in prayer, but also his plan for our salvation. You look at death. Death is Jesus died on the cross. But then in the tabernacle, it was an altar of sacrifice. For us, it's repentance. So you see how he has this beautiful plan all throughout scripture, no matter where you were, it's the same concept, but a different principle in his plan. So again, Old Testament, it's the, it's the tabernacle. First thing is the altar. He on the cross, a, a place of dying out, he died on the cross, shed his blood, just like blood was shed here. Where do we die out? It's an altar. It's a place where we say, God, forgive me. I'm dying out to self. I don't want to live this way anymore. Please forgive me of my sin. Next, in the tabernacle, you'd move past the altar and go to a brazen laver, a place of washing and cleansing. Well, guess what? In Romans 6, 3, and 4, the Bible says that when we're baptized, we're buried with him in baptism. So guess what? Just like for them, the second thing was a, a place of washing and cleansing. Jesus, he dies on the cross. Blood is shed. He gets put in, in a tomb, and he's buried. We get buried, too. But the beauty is that, you know, if, if, if we get buried alive, that, that, that's, that, that's homicide. There's, 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 we're, we're, calling, we're calling authorities. There's a problem if somebody's buried alive. But when someone's buried when they're dead, we celebrate their life. We celebrate their remembrance. Well, guess what? That's why the first thing we need to do is die out on an altar. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. But then when I'm done there, I go into this place where there's a washing and cleansing, where I go to the place of water, just as the priest did, just as Jesus was buried after the cross, we are buried too. How are we buried? In the waters of baptism. 
Thank God for that. And then the resurrection, Jesus, he dies, he gets buried, and then he rises again. That's the resurrections. We celebrate in, on Easter and hopefully a lot more than just Easter. When you, and that was the presence of God. What happens in the holiest of holies? You go to the place where you cross the veil. You come past the altar, the washing and cleansing. And then you go into the presence and, and, and the spirit of God. He communed with the high priest in that place. What does that point to? Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The tabernacle. And then us. De death, dying out, an altar of sacrifice. Buried with him in the waters of baptism. And then he wants to, just like he did in Acts 2 and beyond, he filled his people with his spirit, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. That's what we find in scripture. And so it's incredible that God always had this beautiful plan, and it was beautiful symmetry. But then you look at, we're looking specifically at this place of washing, that they die not in the Old Testament. Well, guess what? There's also a death for us today if we skip the washing. We're not killing animals anymore. We're not washing in a brazen labor. But we know that scripturally, what does that washing point to? I just explained. Water baptism. And guess what happens when Mark, 6, Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. That's, that is not only saying that belief, baptism naturally follows belief. But notice that it's making baptism a salvation issue. Baptism is not, I know some churches believe baptism is like an outward sign of an inward faith. That's how you join the church. And it is a whole lot more than that. We don't, we don't say in order to join the church, you need to jump in the water and then now you sign the membership card. It is a covenant between you and God. It is you saying, I have repented of my sins. I want to have those sins washed away in the waters of baptism. I want to take on the name of Jesus. I want to walk with him. I'm ready to make a commitment in my life. That's what water baptism is. It's so much more of just, this is a salvation issue according to scripture. And water baptism in the name of Jesus is clearly the New Testament version of the brazen labor of water in the, in the Old Testament. Look at Acts twenty two sixteen. It says, what are you waiting for? Get up and, and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. So we didn't see that this, hey, let's have, a, let's have a baptism Sunday or something. And I'm not knocking that. A lot of churches do that. And I love it because it's a push to let the community know, hey, we're baptizing. If you want to get baptized, today's that day. I just want you to know we have a baptism Sunday every single time that we get together. I just, I just want you to know that every baptism Sunday is this Sunday. And then it's next week Sunday and it's the week after. And, and guess what? I, uh, tonight, I said, I'm not going to, there's no chance I'm going to talk about water baptism and not be ready to baptize someone. So I just, I'm excited to let you know that this water back here is clean and it's warm and it's ready to go. So tonight when I get done talking, you, you literally can be baptized tonight before you leave, Wednesday night. You don't have to wait till Sunday. I'm not going to talk about baptism and then not be ready to do it. Why? Because scripturally, when, when people preached about this message, it, what, is, what does he say? Hey, what are you waiting for? Get up and get baptized. That's the message. There is a response. Wow, I need to pray about it. If, if scripture makes something clear, this is what the beautiful thing is. When scripture makes something clear, you don't have to pray about it. If, if my scripture says don't wear, gray, gray, don't wear gray dress shirts, I don't have to say, well, I'm going to pray about this gray dress shirt. It's... It's, 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 it's going to come off, not right here, right now, right now, but when I get home and it's going to come off and, and I'm not going to wear it no more because, because I'm not going to wear gray dress shirts if the Bible says don't wear gray dress shirts. So 
I don't have to pray about something that God speaks. So if God says be baptized, I don't need to pray about it. I'm going to be baptized. If, if I'm he that believeth will be baptized. So if I believe God's word, I'm going to follow it. And so scripture does come right out and say water saves us. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 says those who disobey God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat, only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism. Do you see what he does here? He, he, it says, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body. It's not like this is holy water. This is the city of liberty water. It's hard water. It's going to leave your skin dried out. We're going to turn on the faucet and it comes from the city. There is nothing that is magical about this water. But what is it? It's described right here. It's not cleansing dirt from your body, but it's a response to God from a clean conscience. It's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus. Notice the tabernacle, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and our response to the plan of salvation, it all works hand in hand. It has always been God's plan. Blood shed, water, spirit. Blood shed, water, spirit. Blood shed, water, spirit. Here, Peter, as he's saying this, he points all the way back to the Old Testament, even to before Moses. He talks about Noah. He said there was a world wide flood. How were those people saved? They were saved by water. Water saved them. Just like that, even though we're not talking about a boat and floating and everything, he says, but just like that, water still saves us. Let me tell you how. It's when we get baptized in the name of Jesus. This is not my theology or just this church. This is scripture. This is what Peter is saying. He said, baptism saves us. And this is why when Peter starts preaching after the resurrection of Jesus and they just got filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts 2, 1 through 4 on the day of Pentecost, he starts preaching and everybody gathered in the upper, around the upper room starts going, what meaneth this? What's going on? He starts talking about Jesus and the conviction falls and they feel something in their spirit and they look at Peter in Acts 2, 37 and he says, so what should we do? And Peter responds very succinctly. He said, hey, guess what? It's blood, water, spirit. Just like it's always been in the tabernacle, just like it still is, but it's a little bit different now. It's not a ceremonial uh, process anymore. Now you know what it is. Peter says, I'll tell you what to do. Repent of your sins. Be baptized. How? Does it matter? Yes, it matters. It's the way that they were baptized. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's not a knock on anybody, but there is not one scriptural reference anywhere from Genesis to Revelation. Not one time where someone's baptized in the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It does not happen until around 300 A.D., about 300 years after the time of Christ. Not one person ever biblically gets baptized that way. So, well, it's not really a big deal. I, I, I disagree. I think it is a big deal. I want to get baptized in the name. Jesus literally means Jehovah, Old Testament God, has become our salvation. So I'm not going to get baptized any other name. If you've been baptized in any other way other than in the name of Jesus, man, get it right. Do it. Do it the way that that the scripture lays out. Do it tonight before you leave. And so he says, be repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, death, burial, resurrection right there. The brazen labor is that place of burial, as I referenced. So, so we too can be buried with him in baptism. Notice, we are told in Leviticus that the priests changed their clothes before removing the ashes from the brazen labor to take them outside the camp. Leviticus 6, 8 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Give Aaron and his sons the following instructions regarding the burnt offering. The burnt offering must be left on top of the altar. Here it sits. Burnt offering left on top in the fire must be kept burning all night long. In the morning, after the priest on duty has put in official linen clothing and linen undergarments, he must clean out the ashes of the burnt offering and put them beside the altar. Then he must take off these garments back into his regular clothes and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. Now, we look at this and say, man, wow. This is, this is amazing, the different steps they had to do. But God was making it clear. Listen, there are th certain things that are holy. I'm demanding obedience. There's a way that I have it done. I want you to do it my way. People might say, this makes no sense. Why would you jump in water and get baptized? It's the way he chose. Whether, I think it makes beautiful sense when you look at the whole Bible. But even if you say it makes no sense to me, it does not matter. He did not say to me, Gary, I'm going to write my word. What do you think about this? It's his way. It's his plan. My kids sometimes say, why? Why? I don't understand. Well, I love you. I'll explain it to you. You still don't understand? That's fine. I'm your dad. Just go do it. I can't tell you how many times my dad said, because I'm your dad. Man, I heard that a lot in my life. He didn't really, uh, I didn't come in the generation of millennialism where questioning was strength. My dad didn't embrace that yet. So. But he says he's got to take off his garments and change back. Into. Scripture goes on to tell us they also changed from one robe into another when moving from the outer court into the holiest place, the holy place, which is the first part of that tent. Then there was yet another garment change when they went from the holy place to the holiest of holies. Do you get this? So there's a garment change. Go out, another garment change. And they, as, as they started in the process, altar sacrifice, brazen labor, into the holy place, into the holiest of holies, where I stood and God communed with me between the wings of the cherubims of the Ark of the Covenant. Each step that I made, there was, there was, there was another change of garments. And, and my point is, as they went in their journey, they were getting closer and closer to the Spirit of God, closer and closer to what God's plan was for them. And as they did that, they not only worshiped from their inside, but they worshiped from their outside too. As Pentecostals, what sets us apart in some ways is we don't believe that it's just an inward change. We believe that when we come to God, there's also an outward change. As we align our faith and obedience with God's plan for our lives, and as we continue on this journey of trying to draw near to the presence and power and spirit of God, our externals will also change as we grow closer to him. We will also change the way we dress and our appearance because this tabernacle plan points out to some, something that we still teach. It's holiness is an inside-outside principle. It affects both areas, both inside and outside. Well, God looks on the heart, absolutely, and that's why. If I just said we need to look a certain way, Everybody wear blue shirts on Sunday. That's a cult. That's a cult. We're not a cult. We get accused of being a cult sometimes. We're not a cult. Somebody made the joke once that says, yeah, you're a cult because you just, whatever you say, people just do. I said, man, I can guarantee you there is no cult here. I wish I swung that kind of way that I could say something and somebody would listen and nobody would question. I would, be, that, that, that does not happen here. 
But no, when you say, well, let's just all look this way, that's cold. But what happens is when we say, I'm not going to skip the heart and just go to the externals. But from the inside to the outside, all of a sudden a change starts to take place. That you start to, on your own time with God, you're on your journey. As you start to grow and get closer and, and you feel yourself growing with God, all of a sudden there's going to be things on the outside that start to change too. That's a beautiful process. Because of the mirrors I referenced that were on the brazen laver of water, the priests were able to see a double reflection of themselves. They saw themselves reflected in the water, but then they also saw themselves reflected on the mirror of the, of the bronze. If you have never been baptized in Jesus' name, you can see kind of this double reflection. Let me explain this. Repentance and water baptism go hand in hand. Both the altar and the laver were needed in the Old Testament. You couldn't just say, well, the altar is important. The animal sack of the blood was shed. The scapegoat is there. Or there's the place of washing and cleansing. Would the priest have needed to wash and cleanse themselves if there was no altar? Everybody's like, I'm not, you ain't going to get me on that. I'm not answering. They wouldn't. Because that's where the mess took place. That's where the blood got. That's where the mess transpired at the altar. You don't have an altar. You don't need the labor. So, if you say, well, he, he talked about baptism, I guess I should do that. Let me just jump in the water. As my dad used to say all the time, if you have never repented and you get baptized, the only thing that changed is you went from a dry center to a wet one. That's it. Repentance is the about face. It's the, it's the turning around. It's where you lay your life down on the altar, so to speak, and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I want to get some my priorities straight. I want to start to live different. God, forgive me because I have lived for myself. I have made poor choices. God, cleanse me. God, forgive me. I'm sorry, Jesus. But then after that, after repentance, there's, after the death, there was the place of cleansing. Just like for us. We doubt at the altar and then a place of cleansing. But I'm not just referring to an initial act, but an ongoing process. 1 John 1, 9, written to people who had already been baptized, believers, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. That would have been a powerful statement right there if it ended right there. It would have, it would have been powerful. If we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Praise God. The altar's open. Woo! Yes. Yes. God is good. But notice it goes on to say, and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. What do you think happens at baptism? Water baptism. You've repented of your sins. At that point, does God forgive you when you ask for forgiveness at repentance? When does forgiveness actually take place? This is stuff that scholars write papers about. Start to think about that. When you say, God, I'm sorry, does he forgive you? I would make the argument, yes. So then why can't I just get up and walk out? 
because there was always a plan from the Old Testament to the New. And that even though I've been forgiven, the remnants of that sin, sin still remain. Kind of like the lepers in the New Testament. Do you remember when he said, you're forgiven? And they run up. What does one of them do? Goes back. And says, thank you, Jesus. And what happened to that leper? He was made whole. Meaning, leprosy, the disease, was gone. But there were still remnants. Still scars that remained. So for the rest of your life, even though you had to go, that's why you say, go show yourself to the high priest. The high priest was the one that made decisions as to let you back into the community. You, had, you were able to leave the leper's colony and come back to society. But even when you came back, you would always bear the marks. Imagine standing next to somebody in the supermarket and you look down and see their arm. Their skin is ate away with leprosy. It's gone. They've been deemed capable to come back into society, but you'd still always do it. They were healed, but there were still marks. Repentance is a little like that. The person that went back said, thank you, was made whole. Meaning that person returns to society and never, ever even bore a mark that they had leprosy. When you repent of your sins, you're forgiven. You're made, you're, you're made, you're, you're forgiven, you're, you're clean, so to speak. But... When you go down in the waters of baptism, when you go down in the waters of baptism, it's not just a, you're forgiven of your leprosy. Now you're made whole and all of the blemishes of sin are gone. You come up out of that water. And that's why scripture says we are a new creature in Christ. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We get to be born. That's why he uses words, born again, new birth, made new, old creature, things of the past. That's why when we live that way, we can come to an altar, but if you skip the baptism, you're the leper that doesn't have the disease anymore, but you still have the scars. I want to be made whole. I want it to be washed away. So you cannot make the argument that salvation is with one or the other. They literally go hand in hand in hand. You cannot separate them because the salvific work of Jesus Christ is done throughout the process, not the step. And so notice there's two key components to that scripture in 1 John. Though it says confess your sins and then the cleansing. Two major things that take place right there. Confession and cleansing. Confession takes place at the altar. Cleansing takes place in the water. Confession takes place in the altar. Cleansing takes place in the water. So that's why John says you confess, he will cleanse. You cannot just have one where both are needed so we die not. That's why Jesus Jesus repeats himself in Luke 13, 3 and in Luke 13, 5. Very rarely does Jesus repeat himself verbatim in Scripture. But in 13, 3, he says, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Two verses later, he says, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Literally repeats himself word for word because he wanted us to know we need to wash that we die not. It, did, it was that way in the Old Testament, and it's still that way today in the New Testament. But if you're here today... You've already been baptized in Jesus' name by immersion, put into the waters. 
Because that's the way Jesus even says Jesus baptized came straightway up out of the water. Scripturally, we saw people were baptized by immersion in the name of Jesus, and they were adults or not even adults, people who could understand, people that could make a decision, people that could repent for themselves. If you've never been baptized that way, I, I, it's, not, it's not disrespect or rudeness. It's just not the way we see it in Scripture. And so if you were here and you said, well, I've already done that, just as the priest saw two reflections, one of the water of himself, one of the labor that God had him create, this is a time in prayer where we can reflect and see two things, who I really am and who I can be in him. The reflecting pool is where I have, where I'm already, I've already passed through it. I've passed through, I've gone, I've come in to enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. I've come in through the outer court and I've come in with praise. I began my prayer time by worshiping God. Lord, you're worthy. God, you're good. Lord, I come into your presence today. There's none like you. Start off every day. Don't just come to God and go, all right, here's my wish list for the day. You know, start off with praise. They entered the gates with thanksgiving, into the house, into the courts with praise. But then the first thing they were came to was that altar of sacrifice. That was a place of repentance. God, forgive me. God, I'm sorry. Jesus, I, I messed up. I made poor choices. God, help me. But now you came to a place of reflection. It's not just death, burial, resurrection. It's not just Repentance, water, baptism, spirit infilling. Because then we could say, well, we've done that. We're done. Okay, let's get out of here. This is for the people that don't know this stuff. No, no, no. Tucked away in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, we see something that we often skip over. Because we're more excited about the, the commands to husbands and wives. So we focus on that. But notice Ephesians 5, 25 says, husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Look at the next verse. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle. There we are again. What happens when you get washed and cleansed in the word? There's not a spot or a wrinkle. His church should be washed in the water where there's not spot or wrinkle. Holy without blemish. It's at the labor of water that we can stop and reflect. We can be washed by his word. Empowered by his word. It's in his word we find sanctification and cleansing. And I'm almost done. The priests went up to the labor to sanctify and cleanse themselves for service. After all, they were on this journey. They came to the altar. They weren't just there because they were hungry for God and they just wanted to hear from God themselves. They were there for the whole nation of Israel. They were ministers. The Levitical priesthood was ministers. Have you ever sinned before and gone before God and you're like, God, I'm sorry. And you're just like, uh, you just, you just kind of feel embarrassed. Imagine taking your sin and the sins of a million other people and going before God with your blood sacrifice and Pouring it on the mercy seat, and if it doesn't get accepted, you get struck dead, and they pull you out. I'm not even comfortable doing that for myself, nevertheless all of you. But that's the way it was. So they were ministers. The Levitical priesthood was ministers. They were ministering for the people. They were coming knowing, I'm not just in this for myself. Yes, that's a, a definitely, absolutely, just like it is today. I'm walking this way for my own salvation. 
but I'm also aiming to minister to a group of people. That's what the Levitical priesthood did. And so they went to the laver to sanctify, to cleanse themselves, not just for themselves, but for service. So as I approach God in my time of prayer, I've now come through the time of praise, and I've repented, but now I'm in a place of reflection. And I begin to say, God, sanctify and cleanse me for service. Don't just forgive me for what I've done and said and thought. And uh, don't, Please forgive me. I already took care of that at the altar. But God, now I pray that you would cleanse me. John says, if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's why if you have been baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins, placed under the water, come back up, you don't have to be rebaptized. Now, if you've never followed that biblical pattern, I would do that tonight. But if you haven't, there's not a need to be rebaptized. Why? Because I've already taken on the name. I've already taken on the name. I, I, even if I've been unfaithful at times, I can say, God, forgive me. He says, if you ask, I will take you back. So I don't have to take on the name again. I, I'm cleansed when I confess and forsake my sin. And so tonight, as I, as I, and tomorrow, as I start my prayer time, I'm going, God, I've moved past the time, place of praise. I've come to a place of altar and forgiveness. Forgive me. And now it's a place of cleansing. Cleanse me, Jesus, of anything that is not like you. If there are scars that remain, I want to be the, the bride that is glorious and not a spot or blemish or wrinkle. I want to be ready for you when you come back for me, God. Lord, I pray, cleanse me, wash me, purge me, remove everything that is not like you. Make me like you so that my reflection is of you and not of me. At the end of the day, that's why, too, he deals in externals. I'm not just out here to try and just oh, look a certain part and fit in with the things of this world. I'm not saying that we can't look nice or, or, or somebody in the world says, hey, that's a nice suit, nice dress, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. But my goal is not to reflect compliments or comments or praise for myself. My goal is that my reflection in everything that this world sees and hears reflects Jesus Christ. And so I say, God, sanctify me and cleanse me, not just for myself, but for service. For what it is you have called me to do. The priest was not just in it for only themselves or their family. This was for service and ministry. So we begin to pray the word. Read the Bible. Pray the things that you, that, that you read in the Bible. Such as prayers of repentance. Or even reminding yourselves of the promises of the word of God. I don't think I've ever counseled anyone that is really going through it, that they're depressed and frustrated and struggling and irritated and on the brink of disaster, that they look at me and say, Pastor, for the last 14 days, I've been praying every single day. Every single day I've been in the Word. Every single day I've been reading the Bible. Every single day, God's just, I'm, I'm reading Scripture and nothing's speaking to me. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so even in a frustrated, struggling state, if you can force yourself, your flesh is not going to want to pray and read the Bible every day. It's not going to happen. But you can, if you can 
force yourself. I'm going to get in the word. I'm going to get in the word. All of a sudden, the word starts to speak about God, how he provides, how he heals, how he saves, how he hears, how he loves, how he forgives, how he changes, how he delivers, how he sets free. And all of a sudden, your situation, you start to go, man, faith is, is welling up in me. And, and it's replacing the doubt. It's replacing the fear. It's replacing the anger. It's replacing the frustration because I'm filling my mind and my heart with words. So if you're sitting here going, I want to walk this way with God, but I don't read the Bible, I hope you make it. Am I saying, oh man, he just said I'm going to hell if I don't read the Bible. I'm not saying that there's a, like, that, that scripture says, if you don't read the Bible, you go to hell. I'm not trying to preach that dogmatic doctrine. But what I'm saying is, if you're wanting God to walk with you and speak to you and give you words that are encouraging you along your journey, it's very difficult to make it on a journey. I can't imagine if I'm going to be married to my wife for the next 30 years to think, hey, her and I are going to stay married for 30 more years, but we're never going to communicate. Probably not. So it's not even like I say, well, if you're not in the word, I hope you make it. That's not even me going, that was a prophetic utterance of the spirit of God. No, it's just kind of common sense. Because I need that word. I need his prophetic and his, and his guidance and his wisdom and the faith that, it, that the word brings. And so tonight, as we bring this service to a close, I invite you to do, you, say me. To do one of two things. One of two things. Number one, if you have never been washed, even if you've hit the altar sacrifice, but you've never stopped at the brazen labor of the Old Testament, New Testament, what is that? Water baptism in Jesus' name. If you've never repented and you said, you know what? I've repented, but I've never been washed. I've never been cleansed. I've never taken on the precious name of Jesus Christ. We have clothes that you can change in changing rooms back there, clean, warm water that's ready to go. You can be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins tonight. For those who've already done that, I invite you to approach the labor of water. I'm not talking about literal baptism but I'm talking about a place of reflecting where believers can find a place to pray and they can close their eyes and they can block out for just a few moments every other thing that you got going on before this, after this, tomorrow and you can say Lord what image what image am I portraying Is it more like me or is it more like you? Man, I might look and there's an image of the mirror and an image of the water and there's double reflection and, and right now I know that I see myself in my prayer time. I see what God's calling me to be and those two things, they don't, I wish they did, they don't always line up. I certainly want them to. I want me to reflect his image. I want my choices, my speech, appearance, thoughts, actions, the way I carry it. I want to, I want to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. And so I invite you tonight to enter into a time of reflection.
Who am I, Lord? Do I look what do I look like what you're calling me to be? And what needs to change as I make strides toward the manifestation of your spirit and presence in my life? As I continue on this journey, Lord, is there something you're wanting me to change? Is there something you're requesting, requiring of me? Is there something that you're putting in my spirit that I just can't ignore right now, God? I'm saved for service and like that priest would stop. The place of washing and cleansing. I stop tonight. What am I reflecting? Who am I? Am I what he's calling me to be? If not, why not? What's keeping me from that? And I want to do that every day as I pray. Praise. Repentance. Reflection. Cleanse me, Lord. I invite you right now to find a place to pray. The service is over, but our time of response is not. I invite you to find a place to reflect. Reflect.